Amen. Uh, this week is, uh, uh, from a geopolitical standpoint, uh, a really intense week where our country is, our country's leaders are deciding whether or not we're going to go into another war. And, and while that is an incredibly serious topic, this past week I came across a quote from former President George W. Bush on the eve of uh, the first war we entered into post 9-11, and I, and I found, uh, like many other quotes you could get from the former president, George W. Bush, I found it funny, and, uh, and so I, I thought I would share it with you. <laughs> this is what he, famous for his uh, mixed messages, uh, said previous to jumping into the war against Afghanistan. George W. Bush said, I want to signal to our enemy that you have aroused a compassionate and decent and mighty nation, and we're going to hunt you down. (laughs) I just thought, that is so funny to me. I don't know why. But it was connected to a website that had a bunch of these, like, famous silly quotes from celebrities, and I figure, you know, if they're going to speak out about politics and and say things that they think everybody else should listen, then they're fair game, even for a sermon. So I thought I'd share a couple more of these really intelligent comments with you. This is from Brooke Shields, who had an anti-smoking campaign for many years. Quote, smoking kills. If you're killed, you've lost a very important part of your life. (laughs) I thought, okay, sure. Here's one from Ashton Kutcher. If all the fat people just gave the skinny people more food, we could all just eat. We could solve obesity and hunger at the same time. That's what they say in my house. You know, they're like, Chuck, if you just quit eating, everybody else will be fine. Britney Spears said, I've never really wanted to go to Japan simply because I don't like eating fish. And I know that's very popular there in Africa. And uh, I... Alicia Silverstone was the star of the movie Clueless, which actually was a very funny movie. But apparently she was pretty insecure about how her character was portrayed as this airhead or the movie was portrayed as being not very great. And so she said, I think Clueless was very deep. I think it was deep in the way that it was very light. I think lightness has to come from a very deep place if it is true lightness. That's deep. I got to give her that. However, in all these quotes, the thing that I found uh, most relevant to our discussion today was something that David Beckham uh, said uh, just after his first child was born. And I quote, I definitely want Brooklyn to be christened, but I don't know into what religion yet. Now, for those of you who don't see the, the... the substance of that problem is that the christening is a uniquely Christian experience. I mean, that just is, it don't, it, I have to tell you, it's indicative of the way many people in the world feel. It's like, I'm going to pick and choose from the religions of the world the kind of pieces I like, and I'm going to get them baptized, but I may be getting them baptized as a Buddhist. And you go, okay, but that's not really a rite that they practice in the Buddhist faith, so you probably ought to learn the lingo before you start talking about religion publicly, potentially if you're a celebrity, I suppose. That said, when when we talk about the matters of faith and the matters of what we're believing and what we're trusting in, what, what we substantively are going to hold to as the people of God, we are given some clear pictures 
in both the Old and the New Testament and in today's text, we get to actually see how the two work together, how in the Old Testament there was a, you know, a narrative about Abraham, who was then called Abram, and his wife, and not only the child they had by the miracle of uh, his barren wife giving birth, but the child they had by the foolish decision on their part to go ahead and come up with another scheme to create a child. And, and in this narrative, what we see is some clear pictures about God's definition of what real, genuine, substantive faith is and what his plan is for how people would relate to him and how people would function in life with him. And that said, we don't get to create our own religion as far as God Almighty is concerned. We get to respond to what he reveals and says, this is the means by which you are going to know me. When we talk about trusting God often, Christians might actually reference the life of Abraham. In the book of Hebrews, he's actually seen as one of the great forefathers of faith, trusting in God in ways that are heroic, uh, uh, hence the title of our series, Heroes of the Faith. In our efforts, we perhaps to trust God in ways that are difficult for the believer. We we might find ourselves saying, I I wish I had the faith that Abraham had. And, And it makes a lot of sense for us to think like that, because if you read this summary, and I'm going to read it from Hebrews chapter 11, it's five verses that speak of the the kind of the historic faith of this great patriarch of Judaism and ultimately of our faith Christianity. So I, I quote from the writer of Hebrews about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. What the writer of Hebrews is saying to you and to me about Abraham is, this was a man who should be celebrated because he he took a promise from God. He hung on to it. He lived and enjoyed and, and actually trusted God and demonstrated over time that he believed God, in fact, had said in many places that it was credited to him as an act of righteousness, his ability to simply rest and trust God. What you don't see in this text, and it's one of the themes of this series, is that Abraham's faith is one of great progression. He is learning as he goes. In Hebrews 11, we get the highlights. What you don't hear are the mistakes he made along the way like we read today from Genesis 16 and we will focus on. You don't hear how his faith was built on previous experiences, some of them positive, some of them negative. 
you don't hear in Hebrews 11 anyway, and so if you're not careful, you begin to think, I'm never going to have faith like that because I'm weak and frail, because I screw up and I make mistakes, because I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And you go, what am I supposed to do with all that? What we know from a comprehensive study of the Bible is that people like Abraham were growing in their faith, and it was actually some of the mistakes he made along the way, not the least of which this one in Genesis 16, that led him to be able to say, I'm going to be able to trust God with this future event. His seminal moment, if you will, in faith was his most famous act was that he would sacrifice, he'd be willing to sacrifice his only son, Isaac which, of course, was a metaphor for what the Father did in sacrificing Jesus for our sins. This picture of Abraham bringing his son to the altar and being willing to literally sacrifice him because the Father said so is a picture. It's supposed to be a metaphor. It's supposed to paint a clear, visible, you know, artistic rendering, if you will, of what the Father has done for us in sacrificing Jesus. This was Abraham's shining moment to be a conduit through which we would see the great gospel of Jesus. And in the New Testament, this son, Isaac, whom he was willing to sacrifice, is called the child of promise. And in Galatians, if you want to write these down, you can look them up later, Galatians 4, Romans 9, Hebrews 11, this child, Isaac, is contrasted with another of Abraham's descendants who we are seeing conceived in today's passage, Ishmael. Abraham was promised these descendants. And, and I think it's fascinating that all of us need to take great consideration in what was Abraham's chief stumbling point. He was promised something, and instead of waiting patiently for that promise to come to fulfillment, he decided he was going to kind of craft another way for it to kind of get there quickly. A, a shortcut, if you will. In Abraham's case, his promise was he was going to be the father of this enormous nation, that he was going to be considered the patriarch of so many people that you couldn't count them, more than the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashores. And he was having trouble, he and his wife Sarai, and they were called Abram and Sarai at this juncture in this narrative. They were having such trouble with it, they decided, if we're going to have this many kids, we're going to have to get busy. And since you're barren, we're going to have to figure out another way. See, this is what happened. And somewhere along the line, and I think you've got to be able to relate to this, and I have to sadly tell you that I and other pastors like me, um, we have to absolutely embrace this reality, and that is that God promises to do something, but he does it in his timing. And if you get it confused that it's about God's greatness instead of yours, then you're going to make all kinds of choices along the way to speed up God. So if you think whatever you think you were promised, let's assume you have a notion that God is going to use you in some way in this world, or that you're headed for some moment of grandeur in your life. Perhaps you want to be a, a, a musician, and I would caution you based on our quotes this morning, please don't talk about politics or things that you don't know anything about if you're going to become famous. I would say if those things somewhere are in your mind that you're headed to this moment of greatness, let's assume you believe that that moment of greatness is somehow or another given to you from God, understand that he's going to bring that about in his time. And if you get obsessed with your greatness, you're going to start making choices along the way that are going to lead you places you hadn't intended to go. And this is where we see today's text. Abraham has made some choices. And this is not his, a demonstration of great faith. He and his wife, 
are making some significant mistakes that are going to have ramifications for generations to come. And so I want to share with you two thoughts today. All right, the first is that Satan's schemes have serious side effects. And the other one is that our Savior's solutions have graciously good endings. Let's take a look at the first one here. Satan's schemes have serious side effects. Now, the text says Sarai, who then later is known as Sarah, Abram's wife, and Abram is later known as Abraham, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar, so she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, I have to stop you here and recognize that any time you see these kinds of things happening in the Bible, it's never his fault or her fault. It's usually their fault. It's true in the Garden of Eden as well. I mean, we blame Adam because he's a dope and he's passive, but in reality, it was a cooperative effort between Adam and Eve to go, you know what, I got an idea. Let's go ahead and try the tree. I hear it'll be fun. You know, and that's the voice I break into, my southern dummy voice, when I feel like somebody's making a boneheaded choice. And this is what's going on with Abram and Sarai. They're saying, you know, I got an idea. <laughs> Let's start our own family a new way. God said it's going to come through you. And so Sarah actually brings this to the table. And it seems to her that she's going to be the matriarch, so what does it matter through whom, or who does it matter through whom these kids are born Sarah, it goes on to say that Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after he'd been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to his husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, she conceived, and when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And this is what I'd like you to see. is almost immediately the plan backfires. And this is the nature of any time you think God says, okay, this is the plan. What is the plan? Whatever area of your life you feel like God's got a plan and he's making you wait patiently, inevitably there's going to come along the voice of the enemy. And we talk about Satan because the Bible talks about Satan. And the reality is Jesus was tempted by Satan himself. And that you and I are continuously under assault. Spiritual battle is a reality. Things are being whispered in your ears and in mine that say, you know what? There's a different way you can go about doing this. I know God said go about it doing this way, but I've got a better idea. There are uh, cheap and easy ways that I can eat meals every day. And yet, long term, it is healthier for me to go about the preparation of my meals in a much more time-consuming fashion. Let's just say that. It takes time every morning for me to make my sandwiches. Uh, and, and to, you know, just the right of mayonnaise and, and barely any on my diet and, and, and lettuce, is, you know, which is great sometimes. But, I, you know, but, uh, you know, I'm putting the sandwich together and you know how much easier it is for me to just blow through McDonald's? And, and it's a cost thing, too. Like, I'll go to lunch sometimes and it'll be like, oh, you'd like a healthy salad? That would be $20. And then you can go to McDonald's, you can get 20 nuggets for five bucks. I mean, it's just not fair. It's so much easier to eat poorly. Taco Bell is from hell. I mean, you can get, like, so much bad food for, like, a nickel. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. So, I, I mean, I understand this, this struggle, but there are other areas in our lives, and one of the 
areas in the Bible that, that where this has historically been an issue for God's people to trust God has been in the area of Sabbath rest. Now, the, the, I'm not going to get into whether or not you should work on Sundays. or uh, I, I'm, I'm, That's not my point today. But I do want you to know that in an, in an agrarian society, all right, where, where they lived on the farm, they, they, this, the biblical culture is, most of it is agrarian. They, a lot of stuff going on in the cities, but a lot of the biblical imagery is agrarian because this was the, the major means of production. Well, you had these families that lived on farms. And, and so when they would work the land, all right, for a crop of some sort, you know, every day they work, they produce. And so every day they didn't work, was one-seventh of their income down the toilet. I mean, from their perspective, if you take a day off, it's not just a day to chill with your friends and watch football. It's a day that cuts into their daily income. It literally affected them. It took away a percentage, one-seventh in particular, of their work product. And so when God said to them, hey, listen, I want you to take the day, I command you to take the day off to worship me, to rest. For some, that was a difficult thing to trust the Lord with because it was cutting into their pocketbook. Now, for us in our modern day, our willingness to make uh, Sabbath rest a priority cuts into all sorts of other priorities we've set in our lives. And I'll let you contemplate what that means for your life. What I would say is that God certainly knows best because we all know that if we don't get the rest we need and if we don't maintain a focus on God and if we aren't blessed by the corporate worship of God's people, it affects our lives. I can tell you that for sure. I'm grateful that my parents made us go to church growing up. I didn't like it all the time. I'm grateful now. It got me into a groove of saying this is what we do on Sundays and it is important to me. But it isn't just a matter of going to church. For me, I have to actually gear down and rest. And sometimes, because of the nature of my vocation, I have to take Mondays off just to get some physical rest because we got Bible studies and everything else cooking on Sundays, and this is kind of my job. But for you, you have to say, you know, am I taking a day to chill, to rest? Because if you don't, it will affect you. And it, we've discovered that in the end, there are some ecological benefits to resting the land. And there was a command in the Old Testament that every seven years, they wouldn't farm certain territories. And it's because it's actually, they, they discovered now in our modern age that it's actually beneficial. You see, God knows what's best for you and for me. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, Jesus, it says, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's the understatement of the New Testament. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Our Savior experiences this same thing. And there are other temptations he brings before Jesus, not the least of which is to say, Hey, listen, Jesus, I'll give you the whole world if you'll just worship me. The interesting thing is, is that God intended to feed Jesus, and we see later in Matthew 4 that the angels came and fed Jesus. And God intended to have the whole world submit to Jesus' authority. We know in Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been granted to me. What Satan's trying to get Jesus to do is to take the shortcut. 
He's saying, I got an idea. I got a scheme. But what we don't contemplate along the way is that our schemes tend to create problems. In the case of Sarah and Hagar, immediately when she found out she was pregnant, Hagar started resenting Sarah. I mean, the child wasn't even born. And the dynamics, the emotional dynamics, the feelings of being manipulated and used sexually, the feelings of being abused, and this is really what was taking place. You had a, a somebody who owned a maidservant for all intents and purposes saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you give birth, but I'm not going to consider you my equal. I'm going to have my husband marry you, but you're not going to be on my level. Understand, that's like, it's like not nice. It's unkind. It's cruel. It's, it's wrong. It's sinful. It's unjust and unkind. And, and so it, almost immediately the consequences are like dire But if you know anything about history, this is one of those great forks in the road historically where the children of Ishmael and the children of Isaac continue to fight to this day. All of this Middle Eastern tension that we talk about all the time is in one way a product of this tension. The hatred of Israel and Israel's hatred for Arabs goes and dates all the way back to this moment in history where two people foolishly decided we're not going to trust God's plan. We're going to come up with our own scheme. We're going to allow the enemy, our enemy, the devil, to to enter into our thinking and say, you know what? I got a better plan. Don't be patient. It produces serious side effects that go on and on and on. We don't see the whole board. Jesus does. One of the great moments of my radio career, and I didn't have many before I went into seminary, I got to do some cool things. And one of the cool things I got to do was I got to go to the Sugar Bowl in 1993 to cover uh, Florida versus West Virginia. Now, the good news was I got great seats. I got to be in the press box at the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans. The bad news is that Florida waxed West Virginia something really bad, and I had to stay quiet in the press box. They, they encourage you not to cheer for your team. They also encourage you not to curse out loud when your team does poorly. And so I was kind of clammed up. And, and anyway, all that to say, uh, it was a pretty interesting experience. Most of my life, and that would be every other time I've been to the stadium of any game, is usually at the field level or at the level of the average fan. It's never in that cool, like, luxury box level where you can kind of see the whole thing. This is where the coaches in football games, the ones who call the plays defensively and offensively, you'll see them up there in the, in the stands. And they do that because they can see the whole picture. And this is the vantage point that our God has. He's saying, I'm commanding you to do something. You don't have all the information. I know more than you. Trust me. And we, unfortunately, oftentimes go off on our own. I wrote something this past week encouraging you to consider prayer and, and you can see that at chuckryer.com, and you can follow my blog anytime you'd like. I reference a quote from Tim Keller, who said this with regards to our prayers, God will only give you what you've asked for if you knew everything he knows. He will only give you what you ask for if you know everything he knows. And that's great news. 
It was Garth Brooks who sang the song, Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. You and I ought to be absolutely tickled when God says no, because it means he's got something that he knows that you don't. And Abraham, while he had a life of being able to trust the Lord, this was a starting point for him. This was a oops. And he was able to build his faith on his mistakes. Satan's schemes have serious side effects. Here's the good news. Our Savior's solutions have graciously good endings. The, the major theme of this hero's study is the wonderful truth that God is gracious enough to work through our biggest mistakes, our failures and sins to bring about his good purposes. Now, why does he do this? Simply because he loves his children. He uses our bad experiences to build our faith so that we'll be ready for greater future challenges that will glorify him even more. And this is a beautiful thing. You can read in Hebrews 11 about Abraham's victories, but if you don't know about Abraham's failures, you don't understand how Abraham built faith to get to a point where he can trust the Lord. It says in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord, in Genesis 16, 7, found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And, and haven't you ever felt like that? Just lost. All she was thinking was, this is a bad situation. Sarai's awful. Abraham's awful. She made her own mistakes in the process. Life is coming unhinged. I've made just colossal errors in my judgment, my thinking. People are evil. They're screwing around with my life. And you got that feeling of, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I've been. I'm lost and I'm in pain. And the angel of God knows this and asks that very question. The angel of the Lord assures her in verse 9, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. So be sure of a couple of things. One is, is that Hagar, Hagar, you know, in this process, probably had her own set of problems and mistakes that she made. Now, they're not as prominent or as I think is critical to the future of the trouble that this region will have as either Abraham or Sarai's. But somewhere along the line, the, the, the Lord comes to her and says, I'm going to be more gracious to you than you deserve. You may feel like the, the life has dealt you some bad cards and you've gotten the short end of the stick and all the other analogies you can think of to describe feeling like you're really getting a bad deal. But he assures her, he reassures her that his divine mercy will care for her life. D.A. Carson says this, Divine mercy brings good out of human folly. And on the run from her mistress, Hagar met the angel of the Lord, God in human form, who most often appears in dire personal crises to bring the assurance of salvation. Hagar was assured that her descendants would be too numerous to count, just as Abram had been told earlier. She was given a blessing and a, and a given grace and told, you're going to be the mother of so many people you can't even believe. So be encouraged. Even though you feel like you've gotten a raw deal, even though you feel like you've made some mistakes along the way, God works through those things. And he promised her, you're with child, you'll have a son, you'll name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. 
The Lord uses our times of crisis and difficulty to reassure us that he's listening, he's on top of things. You need not worry, you need not be afraid. When I was in college, I ruined a relationship that I thought I was going to end up marrying. And one of the ways I, uh, uh, one of uh, a relationship that I thought was going to end in marriage. And one of the ways we messed up was by being disobedient to God in the area of human sexuality. And obviously, this is a struggle for many people, and it is a current hot-button topic in culture when you come face-to-face with God's Word says that we are not supposed to conduct ourselves sexually in this way, but my nature tells me I'll do whatever I want whenever I want. I'll create a scheme, and I won't consider the long-term consequences. Well, this was certainly the case for me as a sinful, broken, single man and, and the relationship ended, and I was devastated. And I remember thinking on numerous occasions um, subsequent to the end of the relationship that I had ruined something that was really good. That I'd, I'd had a relationship that could have been this, and I basically blew it. And I remember lamenting over and over again in depression that I had completely screwed something up, and I was never going to get it back. One day I was driving home in my new Chevy Nova. It was new back in 1987. And, uh, and I wasn't paying attention. I was listening to the radio, or I don't know what I was doing, practicing my ADD. And I ran into the back of this car. And I got out of the car, and the person uh, was less than gracious, and I got mad. And then they said, oh, my neck. And the next thing you know, I'm thinking, oh, man, I already can't afford my insurance. Like, I was right on the bubble of being able to afford my insurance, and now I've got some person that's faking that they're injured. And... And it's just one of those moments where you realize I don't have enough money at the end of the month and, and how am I going to make this payment and, and part of the reason I'm in this predicament is because of my own mess ups. Perhaps you've been there, you've charged too much on your visa and you realize I'm not going to be able to make the payment this month and I've screwed myself up pretty severely here and what am I going to do? I made a bad investment, I made some bad choices. You know, you get to the end and you realize, man, these are my mistakes. What am I going to do with all this? And I was praying. And I mean, it was one of those times of prayer where it was very much like the Psalms where David expresses himself without real fear of that he's going to get struck by lightning. And perhaps I should have been because I was just really angry with God. I was like, how come these things happen? And I was kind of venting. And in a strange way, and I don't, can't explain it. I can't write a book about it. I can't go on TV and try to sell copies of how you can get God to talk to you. I just know that I heard the Lord's voice speak to my heart, and he reassured me. He says, do you, do you think I knew you were going to blow it in this car accident? And I said, yes. And he goes, well, then don't you think I love you enough where I would prepare in advance the resources you need to pay your car insurance now? And there was something about the subtle hint of the Lord speaking to my heart, what's already in Scripture, mind you, but just bringing it to my attention and saying, You know, you may have messed up, but I love you enough that in advance of your screw-up, I've already prepared to take care of you. And so I was at rest about the insurance, and then the Lord said, and the same is true for your relationships. And I realized that I had blown this relationship in college, but God knew in advance I was going to do that. And because He loves you and me, He has pre-prepared in advance to take the cruddy decisions we made and to use them to bring about things that will glorify him in the future. This narrative is not simply about 
trusting God in terms of our own decision-making in life, it would be, I would be remiss if I didn't bring you to what is really the most important way to interpret the Old Testament. Sometimes you'll go places in certain Christian schools or certain people, certain pastors, they will leave Old Testament interpretation to that, where they'll go, okay, we're going to go to this story about a Hagar and, and, and Sarah, and then what we're going to do is have a cute little principle, and, this, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic, I'm just saying is that there's more to this story than you and I just trusting the Lord, critical as that is. The most important and the most critical interpretation of this whole narrative comes in the book of Galatians from the Apostle Paul. And that is, it is an interpretation of this encounter between God's plan to bring about something in His way and our schemes to bring about something in our way. And it is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a picture that God has said, I've got a plan for how I'm going to bring about your redemption. It's going to involve me sacrificing my son. He is going to be punished in your place so you won't have to be. All it requires is your humility. All you need to do is rest and step back and put your faith in me. You don't have to do anything but rest and trust and put your faith in me. But in our pride, in our impatience, in our ignorance, in our brokenness, we say, I got an idea. I'm going to create a religious system that enables me to feel like along the way I'm doing well enough that I should deserve to be in the presence of God, that I'm going to create a way that you and I would actually be able to feel good about ourselves, independent of having to trust in and wait on the grace and mercy of God. Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 4. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are to be taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. What he's saying is this. There are two ways that you can attempt to be saved. <laughs> One is, you can see God's solution, and God's solution provides an amazing result, a graciously good ending. You can rest that God's provision for your sin is sufficient, that Jesus died and credited you with his righteousness, and you don't have to do anything to become acceptable to the Father. You just have to rest. You just have to let him rescue you. You just have to allow his covenant promises to be true for you. All you have to do is nothing but put your faith in what he has done for you. This is God's plan. There's another plan, and it takes on all sorts of variations. There are even people who would call their religion, so to speak, Christian. But what it is ultimately is a, a, a group of people saying, we're going to feel better about who we are before God because we're going to attempt to accomplish things. We're going to create our own list of things that make us feel like we should be able to be at peace with God. It may involve religious duty. It may involve behavior in some way, private or public. The point is not what that religion says, what that manifestation of Christian quote-unquote religion says. 
The point is, is that to the degree to which you depend on your good works or your strategy for saving yourself is the degree to which you're going to experience the consequences of such a scheme. You see, not only does the Bible say that those who trust in their own good works, their own strategy, experience ultimately the worst side effect you can imagine, which is eternal separation from God in hell. There is something that's even more insidious than that at a personal level. And I would encourage you, this is one of the reasons why we, we really talk about the gospel of grace a lot around here. Because I can tell you, in my family life, in my marriage to my beautiful wife, when I begin to see the world through the lens of the grace of God, the gospel of God, that I don't deserve his kindness, I don't deserve the blessing that he would have given to Hagar, Sarah, Abraham, I'm equally as broken and equally as a recipient of that type of blessing of his grace. I don't deserve those things. If that's my perspective, then I'm okay with being broken and fallen. I'm okay with being wrong. I'm okay when I'm not looking to my greatness, but looking to the greatness of God. I find myself much more open to people telling me, whether it's people I live with or work with, saying, you know, what you did really was wrong, or what you did really harmed me. The whole posture of my disposition is one of humility, and, and that's just because I'm seeing with my eyes my own brokenness, my own fallenness, and receiving by faith the kindness of our God and Savior. When I'm feeling angry and self-righteous, it's usually because somewhere along the line I forgot that I'm only acceptable to God because of what Christ has done, not because I've done a really good job of living out the faith this week. I become entitled. I become less receptive to criticism. I become less warm to people's concerns about my behavior. I, I become defensive, and you have to think about it like this. And, and I've seen people like this. Perhaps you have too. They have got a system, a religious system that says, I am going to be acceptable to God if I do A, B, C, and D. Well, what do you think is going to happen if you point out that they're failing at A, B, C, and D? Do you think they're going to go, good point. Thanks for bringing that up. They're going to get defensive. They're going to be angry that you pointed it out. They're going to be self-righteous and tell you how they're not so bad and maybe you don't even do A, B, or C. How dare you pick on me about D? It's going to become a defense mechanism. It's going to become our way of saying You can't say that to me. I'm better than you. See, when you're in a place where you realize, I don't have a list. Jesus has sufficiently done everything I need to do to be rescued. And someone comes to you and says, hey, you realize you're a dirtball? D. I'm able to go, you're probably right. I'm sorry. By God's grace and because he loves me and because I love you, I'm going to try not to be D. But that does not affect my status as a child of God. I'm at peace and I'm at rest. See, this is when we talk about the graciously good ending. It means that God reassures you and I that we can have rest with him. The beautiful reality of the faith that Abraham experienced and the the faith that grew was that He was able to learn to trust the Lord. And then one day when he brought his son up to the mountainside to sacrifice his son in obedience to the father, he was able to to do something for us. His act of faith was able to put 
in concrete terms and concrete images for generations to come. You and I among them, the picture of what God the Father would do in Christ. Abraham doesn't walk up that mountain to sacrifice Isaac if he doesn't first mess up in this particular narrative. And the hope for you and I is is that God sovereignly, providentially loves you. He's ready to forgive you. He's ready to have you move on from this. But he desperately wants you to trust him because he wants to work in your life in a way that people will see him in you. So let's pray to that end, shall we? Father, would you enable us to see you so that you can work in us and others can see you in us. Lord, we're uh, humbled today because we're well aware of the number of times we haven't trusted you. We're well aware of the number of times that we've decided to go our own way and justify ourselves. And so today is the